Hello, and welcome to Economics for Rebels, the podcast of the European Society for Ecological Economics. Up until recently, it was an act of rebellion to pursue economics as if nature mattered and the earth was finite. This rebellion must bring a major shift to economic thinking. Our podcast is dedicated to exploring the economics of just and sustainable transformations in conversations with scientists, experts, activists, pushing for rapid and radical change for people and planet. Welcome to our podcast. I am today's host, Alexander Kavash, and you're listening to the Economics for Rebels podcast. Ecological economics is all about staying within planetary boundaries while providing prosperity for all. This, however, means that we desperately need to transcend both our growth-centered worldview and our fully growth-dependent economic and social systems. The solutions proposed by ecological economics cover messages of true political nature. While bottom-up initiatives are incredibly important in this transition, drastic top-down policy changes would make a massive difference. Our guest today, Tim Jackson, is most certainly among those top ecological economists who are in constant liaison with policymakers trying to influence their decisions to move towards beyond growth institutions. In today's podcast, I am asking him just how far is this concept beyond the political rationale for today's decision makers? Tim is an ecological economist and writer, director of the multidisciplinary research center called Center for Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity. He has been at the forefront of international debates on sustainability for three decades and has worked closely with the UK government, the United Nations, the European Commission, NGOs, private companies, and foundations to bring economic and social science research into sustainability. He has published numerous books and countless articles on the topic. Maybe his most famous is the award-winning and groundbreaking book called Prosperity Without Growth. His newest book, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, was published by Polity Press in 2021 and won the 2022 Eric Zensi Prize for Economics. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Sandra. It's good to be here. When preparing for this podcast, I, I realized that your work covers such a vast area of, of relevant topics that, that I could probably spend the whole series covering just your research. Um, but of course, you're too busy for that and you couldn't spare the time. So I, I just recommend the listeners to read your books. And I will focus on asking you questions that very few other ecological economists could answer, namely... Just how far is ecological economics from breaking through to mainstream policymaking, for example, in Europe? Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question and difficult to answer because we don't know how far it is from breaking through to the mainstream. We just know that it's not really there yet, um, but it is closer than it used to be. So, so there is some movement towards ecological e economics and, and there's a sense, I think, of even that critical question of tackling growth and growth dependency that it now has political traction in a way that it didn't before that that doesn't mean to say that there's any mainstream political party out there who's talking or thinking seriously about post-growth but if you look around if you look around different governments and if you look around Europe for example you will find examples of places where that criticism of growth has been taken 
at least a little bit seriously. And back in back in two thousand and nine, when Prosperity Without Growth was published, um, you know, you could almost have pointed at the UK and say they're taking it seriously because that was a, a report formally to the Prime Minister of a developed G seven nation talking about limits to growth. And as such, you could say, you know, that was one of the first times that that concept, that idea, that critique had entered the debate at the government level, probably ever, and certainly since the 1972 report, which was written by the Club of Rome on the limits to growth, which was which attracted a lot of attention, but it wasn't a report from or to government about the issue. So in some ways, and I think that's why Prosperity Without Growth was... Um, a sort of, if you like, a kind of unexpected hit um, was because it was formally a report by a government commission to a government about exactly that issue. Now, you know, the reality is that government didn't take that report seriously at all. They wished it would go away. They, A year or two later, they abolished the commission that produced the report. And although there was a sort of formal recognition that was forced out of the government at the time about the importance of the report, it never had that policy impact that I think, certainly that I had hoped it might have at that time. But But you could look around Europe and you could say, well, actually, almost about the same time, probably building on that work to some extent there was a, a, an unkept commission in germany that had very much the same questions at heart there was a growth in transition movement in austria that was also questioning the growth-based model um, there were attempts to change the indicators through which we measured the economy um, across the united nations there were examples of different indicator sets in in countries around the world. New Zealand was working one already by that by a few years later, 2014, 2015. Bhutan has had its gross national happiness accounts for quite a long time. And then in 2018, the European Parliament had its first post-growth conference. So that that's, you know, it's still not an answer to your question. It still doesn't tell us how far we are from it being mainstream, but it does tell us that that the question itself has become more and more important and that there are already things going on across different countries and perhaps particularly in Europe that are questioning that growth-based model. And there's going to be a conference uh, at the European Parliament again? Yes, indeed, yeah. And in uh, May this year, so that that actually is a, a follow-on conference from the 2018 post-growth conference in the European Parliament. And this one, I think, has much more cross-party support. It's been a very careful negotiation by the MEPs who who led that report, principally Philippe Lambert, who led that conference back in 2018, whose, whose idea it was, whose brainchild it was, really, And he, this time around, he's been very uh, keen to get more cross-party support um, because his, you know, his argument is that it's no good it being a niche Green Party idea. It actually has to be adopted as a discussion by all the parties. And, And so he's been a lot more careful about bringing different parties along with him into this 2023 conference. Well, we all feel that um, 
okay, maybe there are some policymakers who are open to the idea, but it's uh, it's, it's very hard to 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 break through. What do you think are the major barriers? What are the topics that are the least digestible to most policymakers where they say, no, I don't want to hear about this? Yeah, it's a, that's a, a good question as well. I mean, I think right back in the beginning when I was writing about it and thinking about it, I, I posed the idea of a kind of growth dilemma, um, a sort of, you know, can't live with it, can't live without it dilemma um, that growth is on a finite planet and certainly material growth on a finite planet is clearly unsustainable. Um, but the alternative sort of doing away with the growth based model is incredibly difficult and, and threatens certain kinds of economic instability. And, and I think one of the difficulties of the debate since that time has been people not being able to live with that dilemma. They, they, they sort of, you know, they're either so much aficionados of the concept of growth that they cannot accept that it's unsustainable. And so they essentially, you know, even though they sometimes accept that the kind of growth that we have now is unsustainable, they want to argue that we could make it sustainable. So it comes really down to a belief in technology. If we're clever enough with our technology, we can get around all of these issues. We can improve our efficiency, reduce our fossil fuel consumption, reduce our impact on the land and on biodiversity and on nature, and we can become sustainable and keep growing. And then there are people who sort of say, well, actually, and, and ecological economists typically tend to fall into this category who sort of say, well, there are limits to that efficiency. There are limits to technology. Many of the technologies we introduce don't slow down growth, they increase growth. And that means you're running faster and faster in terms of efficiency just to stay in the same place that you were before. And you're not reaching those targets for decarbonization or a nature positive society um, any faster. And actually, when you look at the historical evidence, you don't see that much in the way of progress towards those targets at the aggregate level. We are just about maybe possibly being able to sort of stabilize our global carbon emissions. And that is so far from where we want to be in terms of carbon targets that you can't really call it progress. And we haven't seen that progress, even in spite of the pandemic years. We haven't seen that progress in terms of a drastic in reduction in carbon emissions that we would need to see to meet those targets. So, so the, the other side, if you like, of that debate sort of says, well, because that evidence is just not good enough in terms of progress. We obviously have to just do away with growth and we should focus on degrowth and we should have policies that lead us towards a contraction of the economy, particularly in the global north, because that's where most of the impact comes from. That's where most of the historical impact comes from. And to talk about growth at this point is deeply irresponsible. And so you get a kind of divided argument that there are those who can't see an argument against growth or can't countenance an argument against growth, then you have those who can't countenance an argument for growth. But if you take the growth dilemma seriously, you actually have to accept that 
we've built our societies around growth. We've built our institutions around growth. We've built our social norms around growth. People's expectations of progress are built around growth. And so you have to really understand that as a society, we're in the middle of a profound dilemma. And that's the place, it seems to me, where we can be most creative. But it entails accepting that when politicians find growth difficult to abandon, that they are speaking to some extent from a conventional economics an established assumption about government, a set of political institutions, all of which needs us to work on it, to change it in order even to address the dilemma. And this is why I think, you know, in, in Austria, I mentioned the, the Growth in Transition initiative, which, which stems from around about 2010, I think, shortly after Prosperity Without Growth was published. And it was an attempt to create exactly that conversation to say not to not to demonize growth, not to not to demonize the politicians who were dependent on growth or the institutions who were dependent on growth, but actually to begin a conversation and hold a space for what is probably the most difficult conversation of our time, which is how do we recreate an, an economy and a society that is not growth dependent in which we could make sure that we deliver welfare without growth, in which we make sure that we can deliver jobs without growth, in which we make sure that we can deliver financial stability without economic growth. And understanding each of those dependencies actually is, I think, the, the, the critical task for today because, and this is a long way round from your question, but it is my answer to that question, because it is those things, ultimately, that good politicians care about. They care about welfare, they care about jobs, they care about financial stability, and they should care about those things, because all of those things are inherent in our idea of social well-being, of human well-being, and they are essential to any kind of vision of social progress. If, if people don't have the means to live, if they have poor health and declining health, if we have a financial system that is completely unstable and that's falling apart, we don't have the basis for progress. And so politicians, to some extent in being resistant to the critique of growth, claim their rationale for that resistance in their defense of these basic things, well-being, social welfare, security, financial stability, people's jobs. And, and the task, therefore, is to show, and this is where a lot of the post-growth economics that we have been working on in CUSP comes in, that you can deliver welfare without growth. You can think of prosperity without growth. You can think of social progress without growth. You can think of financial stability without growth. And you can have decent livelihoods and meaningful jobs without a growth-based economy. So continuing from, from that thought, you think these are the, the leverage points that we could we could maybe work with? I think they are the they are I mean they are the task it seems to me um, we we run a, an all-party parliamentary group on the limits to growth here 
CUSP is the secretariat for it. Um, its members are members of parliament, parliamentarians, and um, we have worked with them now for seven years and bringing them to the table. And it's really only, I would say, half a dozen or so really committed MPs who engage in that activity. We have quite a lot of members of the APPG, the all-party parliamentary group, but we don't have that many who are deeply committed to the dialogue. But our task in that dialogue, and, and I think where we've been successful in that dialogue, is, is encouraging people to enter that space of the growth dilemma and to get them to you know, think creatively and critically about processes of change without forcing them out of their comfort zones and without sort of making them go out to their constituents and try and get them to vote for them on the basis of a, a no-growth policy. None of our politicians, none of our parliamentarians would at this point, I think, sadly perhaps, be able to do that. But what they can do is engage in the dialogue. And the, and the leverage points, you know, the leverage points in some ways, I think there's, there's, there's two or three leverage points. The first is that the growth-based model is falling apart, not because of a critique from the degrowth movement or the post-growth movement, but internally falling apart. We've pushed the growth agenda so uncritically over so many decades that we've actually now created an unstable economy and it's unstable financially, it's unstable socially, it doesn't provide decent livelihoods for people, it doesn't provide decent conditions of work for people and as a result of that there's a kind of breaking down of the social fabric which is creating almost dystopian societies in the very advanced economies, in the most advanced economies of the world and that was not the vision people were sold. That was not what growth was supposed to deliver. But it is creating that inequality, it's creating that instability, and the obsession, the fetish of increasing the GDP has meant that we have chased these false promises and in the process destroyed the planet and undermined the stability of society. And that is something that politicians can and do understand that the, the growth-based society has no real solutions to its own problems at this point in time. So that's, you know, that's, that is an incentive for a politician to act because they want a positive vision for their constituents. They are voted into office on their ability to defend and fight for a positive uh, vision of progress. And then the other leverage point that I think, you know, has emerged in the last few years um, is that, and the two, two are quite related in a way, is that the growth rates, particularly in advanced economies, have begun to decline. And, and at first you think, well, that's obviously the pandemic. You know, we, we had to shut everything down, so growth went into negative territory. Growth rates went into negative territory. And then, and then you say, yeah, that's a blip. But if you look a little bit further back, you find that they were already declining before that. And then economists will say, yes, that's because of the financial crisis. That was another crisis that undermined the stability of the system. 
And that's why we're, we're still living in the shadow of that. We still haven't recovered from that. And, and you will see analyses all over the place which talk about the difference in growth rates after the financial crisis as opposed to before the financial crisis. And the way they, the, most economists do that analysis is they take an average of the growth rates from, let's say, the 1980s up to the financial crisis and then an average of the growth rates after the financial crisis. And they say, hey, look, the average after the financial crisis is considerably lower than the average before the financial crisis. But an average of two time periods that are not really properly related to each other is almost the worst kind of insight into what's going on. If you look more closely, you find a gradual decline in the growth rate from the 1960s and 1970s onwards. So that by the time we got to the financial crisis, we were already in a period of what economists now call secular stagnation. Basically, we're not growing at the rates we used to do back in the 1960s. We are already living to all intents and purposes in a post-growth society, but we're living in denial. And that's an incredibly powerful leverage point because it means that economists actually have to start thinking differently about the growth-based economy. They have to start to understand what underlies that decline. They have, to un they have to understand how to manage an economy when it is in that form of decline. And politicians also have to get their heads around that as well. And so that, that leverage point, I mean, that was a very interesting point for me when that occurred and it, the discussions around it were several years after the financial crisis or so around about between 2012, 2014, really mainstream economists began to talk about secular stagnation. And, you know, some of the most well-known of those, like Larry Summers, who was advisor to the US government, able to say, actually, this is not a temporary blip because of the financial crisis. This is a long-term trend that may not go away. And so that is a real wake-up call for an economics that believes that progress is about economic growth. And it's a wake-up call for politicians who want to be voted in by their constituents on a vision of progress. And, and that, that I think has proved, you know, really surprising in terms of the people who are interested in entering the conversation with that understanding of economic trends. I, I was asked to write a background paper for a report for the UK government which was published in 2018, 19, just before the, the pandemic. And, and it was called the Global Strategic Trends Report. And for the first time ever, that Global Strategic Trends Report wanted to look at the question of economic growth, whether it was a risk in the future because of the way that we organize the society, because of the way uh, that we depend on growth and and because of the evidence suggesting that growth would not be available in the same way in the future. And that report was commissioned, you know, really unexpectedly by the Ministry of Defence because it was perceived as a strategic, economic and also potentially military risk. So they curate the Global Strategic Trends Report, looking at how secure we are as a nation into the future. And suddenly this issue of declining growth rates was right there, centre of their attention. And I'd like, you know, I'd like to be able to say that that 
report, which was published, was taken seriously by government and that it changed the discussion, you know, that it was a, almost a turning point in the discussion, but it, it wasn't. And I think part of the reason for that was that very soon after that report was published, we were dealing with COVID. We were in a different situation. We had another emergency to deal with. But interestingly, COVID also became a kind of leverage point because the critical question in COVID was, how do you ensure people's livelihoods? How do you protect people's health in a situation in which you are basically living in a post-growth situation where you where you cannot assume that the growth of the economy, the revenues that come from that will protect people's ability to have jobs, to maintain their own health and to have a decent quality of life. So these are the kinds of things that I think, you know, almost... There was a politician who, who who was once asked, you know, why is it that your why is it that your manifesto commitments haven't turned out the way you expected? And the politician answered, "Events, dear boy, events." And it was it was a you know, in a sense, government is about dealing with events, dealing with things as they come up, but it also has to be. And I think this is a thing that that is very difficult in short term politics to to really ground in reality, it has also to be about looking to the future and, and encouraging that conversation about the future and about a viable future. And, and that's where, you know, that's where I think, despite all of that potential leverage that, that could be used to change the conversation, it's where that political bandwidth kind of goes missing a little bit at the moment, particularly, of course, in the middle of you know, cost of living crises, inflation, war in Ukraine, still climate change that we don't quite know what to do with, biodiversity crises, um, and and also I would argue the legacy of a growth-based model that has undermined the social fabric and left society just a little bit broken at this point in time. And so it demands, you know, a kind of courage in politicians, a vision of political leadership that's that's hard sometimes to find. You mentioned um, short-term political agendas, and um, do you think there is a way to fight such uh, short-termism in policymaking, or we just have to live with it? Yeah, I think I think there is. I mean, there are some really useful um, political initiatives. Um, one of one of them is the idea, and I think it was first pioneered in Hungary, of an ambassador for future generations. This is kind of like saying, well, the political process is fine. It gives a voice to different democratic views from different sections of society. But hey, wait a minute. Future generations are not well represented here. Actually, even the youngest generation that's current is not really represented in our politics. And so the idea of having an ambassador for future generations actually is, is like saying, well, here's someone whose job it is to speak for the interests of the people who are not here yet or not voting yet. 
And that, I think, uh, that's been quite a powerful idea. It's been taken up here um, in the UK. It was taken up by the Welsh government. And there is actually a, a Future Generations Act, a Future Generations Commissioner. There's a big initiative to make that Future Generations Act cover the whole of the UK. And there are other examples around the world of where that Hungarian initiative, that was, you know, really kind of creative way of thinking, let's have democratic representatives of and for future generations. How would we think differently about our politics if those voices were present in our discussion today? How would we do more justice to those interests if those voices were present today? And so, I, and I think that kind of, you know, that is one way of, of thinking about making politics longer term. But you also, I think, have to think more about the institutional ways in which short-term politics is embedded in our current institution. So you have to think about how long political terms are. You have, to, you have to think about what kind of party political system you have, whether it's flexible enough to, to meet the demands of, of a change into the future and of recognizing the importance of the future. And here in the UK, I think, you know, we have we have a decent political term by some standards, you know, kind of five years political term for a government before you have to go out to the election in New Zealand. It's only three years. In some places it's longer. And, and that's, that's still quite short term. But, but also, you know, the structure of that party political system matters too. So here we have a, what's called a first-past-the-post political system, which generally means that you don't get a representative democracy at all. You just get two political parties. You swap power between them according to algorithms and boundary changes, which each party tries to manipulate to maximize its chances of power into the next system. So that does not work. You know, it doesn't work as a political system and it's better in most places in Europe where there is a proportional representation of the interests across society those things also matter. And, and a third aspect of that short-termism, I think, is the relationship between commercial and business interests and government. And so while you have very strong, well-established and basically secretive lobbying processes and political funding processes which allow corporate interests into the arena of government, that short-termism tends to get locked in by the short-termism of corporate interests. So those are, but those are all things that are changeable. They're all within the remit of, of political and policy change to, to improve. And, um, you know, in some places you do see that improvement, like that example of the Hungarian ambassador for future generations. It was something that almost came out of nowhere as a political idea, but begins to sort of spread and to become a part of the fabric of government in different places. I wish it worked in Hungary. <laughs> you don't think it did work in Hungary? I mean, it's... Well, it used to, but not, it doesn't anymore. But then again, you know, we have a pretty particular um, political situation here at the moment. So um, yeah. Does it exist still in the form yeah, that it, it, it actually, does? Yeah, it actually does. But um, obviously, as, as most things that are meaningful, it, you know, it's a kind of, um, 
it's it's something that's there but doesn't really have a, a attraction mm. I, I think in in the example in in the uk the one in wales it certainly has influenced some political decisions for example you know it was famously cited as being one of the reasons that instead of expanding one of the major roads into and out of Wales, that other decisions were made to reinforce different kinds of infrastructure so as not to have a bigger and bigger motorway and to recognise that actually for all sorts of reasons, some of which were long-term reasons about the interests of future generations, but some were also the interests of current generations that it would be better, you know, there would be a better choice to make. And so that was famously attributed to the existence of the Future Wellbeing, uh, the, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. And and it certainly had, I think, some influence in, in creating a more progressive Wales that's got stronger climate targets, that is more in tune with social justice arguments and the transition to a just economy. But it's a very, very small example. And as you say, sometimes these can become almost stagnant institutions. They were a great idea, but they haven't really shifted the politics of the day as much as we'd want them to. When we're talking about concrete, specific policy actions or or changes in, in the overall orientation, do you think it's it's the the local municipal levels, the national levels, or the supranational levels that can have a major impact? I think it has to work at all those levels. Um, you know, I was quite in, involved in uh, I've, I've been involved in all kinds of grassroots movements that happen at the local level and that therefore impact on politics at the local local level. There was obviously you know, Extinction Rebellion actually built itself up from local grassroots support for for the movement. Uh, transition towns before that also were built up at the very local level. And, and when Transition Towns was a big thing, which was around about the time of the financial crisis, you know, we looked a lot at, at, the, at the success, the extent of those movements to create change. And we found some, you know, really interesting things First of all, that it did motivate people, that it did bring people to the debate, it did encourage change and it encouraged people to change their own lives. And at the town level, which is where transition towns operated, municipal governments would often come along on the back of that interest and begin to support some of those changes where they could. But we also found there was a kind of limit, there was a kind of ceiling on the effectiveness of that change. What tended to happen was that transition town movements could do quite a lot around an issue like food because you could you know, have initiatives which were about local production of food, where you could encourage community gardening, where people would volunteer their time, where you could create local food supply chains and local markets. And so that was all something that was within the remit of uh, a town to achieve for itself with its own uh, with its own internal motivation and its own institutions and structures. And then you came to something like transport. And there you're talking, you know, about 
road building, you're talking about infrastructure, you're talking about national rail networks, you're talking about uh, access to and use of airports and flying. And those things tend to have two characteristics. One is that they are financially significant in terms of investment. And the other is that partly because of that financial significance, their decision-making tends to happen outside the local level. So you immediately as a town, wanting to change people's transport habits, invest in local public transport infrastructure, you are curtailed. There's a ceiling that sort of stops you rising higher towards the goal you want to be, which is defined by the investment architecture and more national level government decision making. And so that's the point, of course, where you realize that these changes have to be supported by government, they have to be nurtured by government, the conditions of change for people at the municipal level have to be in accordance with government policies, and government sets the rules through which finance works and financial markets work, it sets the rules through which infrastructure investments are made. And so if you don't have a government that supports those things at the local level, it doesn't matter how much enthusiasm you have at that local level, uh, how many good people trying to create positive change they run up against those barriers and that's why you need that national level in there and the international level i mean people quite often ask the question um you know could one economy on its own become a post-growth economy uh, and the answer to that i mean the answer to that is it's not straightforward in some sense you could say yes it could because actually japan did if you like as an example i mean it's not it's not it doesn't wish itself to be a post-growth economy it's not it's sort of an accidental post-growth economy with a couple of decades of near stagnant growth rates but it did it under very particular circumstances in which it had a very particular structure of the national debt which was mostly owned inside the country if you have a national debt that's owned outside the country you're much more susceptible to foreign investors to your currency exchange markets to your trade markets and so actually it the answer to that question could you do it at the national level without something at the global level international level it is not easy to answer it depends entirely on your strategy and it clearly becomes easier if countries are working in collaboration in coordination with each other rather than competing i mean we've seen horrible examples in which international finance has basically been able to demolish the legitimacy of a of a government of a country and of a nation's finances thinking particularly i guess of argentina a few years ago where essentially you know the stability of the country came under attack by venture capitalists able to play a game within international financial markets on the sovereignty of the national financial situation and that that's something you know it's it's in some ways it's one of those archetypal problems about that that you tend to raise as you suggested at the beginning when you start to think about these issues it's almost a, that deep philosophical question about how it's possible to do the right thing in the presence of other people determined to do the wrong thing and undermine you in the process. And, and that, I think, is where the rule of law at the international level 
to some extent is a necessary, um, you know, it's necessary for it to be a successful transition towards a post-growth economy. And, and, and it's something that's, you know, has been explored a little bit in relation to climate change, the idea of a global climate authority of some kind. But I think almost more important than that would be some kind of global authority that created a fair, transparent, socially just, financial market um and and then and then actually protecting that ability to transition to a post-growth situation would be at the national level would be much easier for countries to countenance you are a kind of um flag bearer for ecological economics when it comes to to policy making and and most of our scientist colleagues have have truly relevant messages for policy makers but actually very few of us actually have contact to them. So um, if we wanted a bit of self-reflection, uh, should we do things otherwise? Can we do things otherwise? I absolutely see that the, you know, the tension that afflicts the academic environment at the moment, and I've always seen it. In, in some ways, I, I'm, I would describe myself as a kind of accidental academic. I never really saw myself as working inside a university. And so in some sense, and, and when I first started working in this area, I was working for NGOs, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth in particular. And that was a place where I had two things which are difficult to achieve in academia. One is the freedom to say what I wanted. And, and you would like to think that academia is a place where you can say what you want, where, where there's an intellectual freedom. But unfortunately, It isn't always the case. And the other thing that I had was not just access to political debates, but the motivation to engage in them. So an organization like Friends of the Earth back in the day measured its impact by column inches in newspapers about events or issues that it was campaigning on and the impact that that then had on policymakers. So I was... I was brought up, if you like, as an academic in an in a external environment in which I had different key performance indicators of what success is and in which I had a freedom to, to critique the existing system in a way that is difficult in academia. But having said that, you know, although it's difficult that is what i brought with me into academia as well as the you know the the desire to study the issue i also brought that those two things you know speaking truth to power and measuring your impact not in terms of publications in peer reviewed journals but not or not solely in those terms but also in terms of your ability to take those results those findings that research that strategic direction directly back into policy, back into society, and to measure your sense of, of your success in, in those terms as well. And I, you know, I, think, I do think it's got harder, especially for young academics, young researchers, to do that. But it's certainly, you know, it certainly isn't impossible. It's, it's about, in some sense, kind of keeping your eye on what it is that motivated you to do those things in the first place. And, and just kind of 
almost, you know, following that rather than the very attractive, potentially lucrative career path that welcomes you into the future with its promise of four-star journals and academic success until one day, of course, you become, if you're very lucky, a vice chancellor of a university in which everyone is going along the same gravy train, doing the same thing. So I think you have to, as an academic, you have to kind of give up that career path a little bit. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't good vice chancellors. Of course, there are. And it would be even better if there were more of them. But I do think that academic research should be always grounding itself in its impact pathways, particularly in policy, also in civil society. So that a lot of our work in CUSP actually is about our communication with ordinary people, with lay people, as much as it is with politicians, and sometimes, of course, in business and, and creating strategic resources for business to, to bring them along in the same debate. And last, I would like to ask you the question we ask all our guests. What is your rebellion? I think it's a kind of rebellion against rationalism. So I, before I was working for Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace, I, I had actually established myself in, in London writing radio plays for the BBC. And I thought that's where my career was going. Until it turned out that I, you know, one day I walked through the office of Greenpeace and said, look, I have these skills I'd really like to help. Would you, can you put me on some project work? And I overnight sort of started work on the economics of renewable energy. And, and then my career path was sort of defined for me by that. But I still, I, I continued, I continued with that creative work and I, and I've, finally sort of also brought it together with the academic work in CUSP. We have a strand of work in CUSP, which is about the arts and the role of the arts and creativity in the arts. And, and I think that is a kind of act of rebellion in, in, in all sorts of ways. It's that, it's that rebellion against the idea that rationalism will save us, that we can stick to the land of unpartisan reason and that this will provide logical answers that will guide the way into a sustainable future. And, and I think even though at times my, my own academic career has taken that as a principle, I, I think it's wrong. I think that actually what we are talking about in deepest philosophical terms is what it means to be human and what it means to be human in the face of limits and how we think of our lives in the face of limits and how we navigate and negotiate a society that allows us to flourish within those limits. And that is such an inherently creative, some might even say spiritual task that it calls on us to step outside the boundaries of rationalism and, and sometimes to step outside the boundaries of what academic science is pitched as, sometimes to step outside the boundaries of what civil society regards as social norms and sometimes to, to rebel in literal terms by supporting 
those people who are engaged in civil disobedience. But I think that rebellion, you know, that kind of act, act of rebellion against rationalism to me is the sort of most fundamental guiding principle that I think has kind of informed everything that I've done. Well, that's a wonderful way to end this conversation. And thank you so much for uh, uh, being our guest. And thanks to all of you for spending time with us. Stay tuned with us for our next episode. Bye, Tim. Thank you. Thanks, Sandra. Thank you for listening to the podcast series of the European Society for Ecological Economics. If you like the conversation and your work is related to ecological economics in any discipline, consider becoming a member of our society to stay connected. If you are ready to discuss the topic, join our Facebook group called European Society for Ecological Economics. <laughs>